Uh, again, thank you all for being here. It is always a privilege and honor to uh, open the word uh, with you all and be able to walk through it uh, together. It has been, as we've talked about, a crazy week. Uh, last week, we didn't have this service. We had to go online. I heard many stories of people who got their kids together, getting ready to walk out the door, and then all of a sudden they had to stop. And they got all dressed up, got their makeup on, husbands got dressed, got the kids ready to sit on the couch and watch service online, engage online because of the weather. Uh, I know that was difficult, but I'm thankful for a church that strives uh, to create an online experience that uh, is, is engaging, that allows us to draw in and meet uh, virtually through uh, the internet and everything else that we've got going on. But it does not replace this. It does not replace the gathering of believers. I was sitting up here listening to you guys sing close to the very end, and uh, it was it's moving to hear the voices of the saints crying out to God, declaring his love, how holy he is, that he isn't just God, and nothing replaces the gathering of the body. So I want to encourage you, implore you to, to lean in, fight to be here, because this is extremely, extremely important. Uh, if you haven't been here or you have forgotten, because everything that's been going on, we're walking through the book of Revelation. Uh, we're going chapter by chapter, walking through everything that's been going on, and uh, I want to remind you that this book, originally, man, some people had some arguments over the book of Revelation. There were some tensions that were brought about because of the book of Revelation, but that's not the intent behind it. The intent for the book of Revelation is hope. It's the hope of Christ. For the believer, it is the hope of Christ coming again to once and for all put an end to sin. Now, we want to be extremely careful as we walk through, I don't know if that's me, this beard gets this mic messed up a lot, uh, but uh, this, this uh, book, we have to walk through extremely carefully. As we've been doing, we're walking through the things because uh, Revelation talks about the end times. It talks about the end of the world as we know it. It talks about the end times, and that draws a lot of attention from not only believers, but non-believers to kind of try to put their stamp on when the God is going to come, when Christ is going to come again. This has happened from the very first century. People have tried to guess, pick a date when Christ is going to come. But in Acts 1, uh, verse 7, Jesus says, no one is to know the time or place that I will come again. We have to allow the mysteries of God to be the mysteries of God. But yet again, time and time again, uh, Martin of Tours, a French bishop, said the Antichrist had been born and the world would end in 400 AD. That didn't happen. Many, including a, a man named Arrhenius, predicted that Jesus would return in 500 AD based upon the dimensions of Noah's Ark. That didn't happen. Christopher Columbus said the world was created in 5343 CE and would last about 7,000 years. So that means that the world will come to an end in 1658. As you can guess, that didn't happen. Jim Jones had a vision of the nuclear holocaust in 1967 and Charles Manson predicted that Helter Skelter would come and the world would end in 1969. Pat Robinson predicted on the 700 Club that the world would end in 1982. And guess what? That didn't happen. So he took a second crack at it. Uh, he, he, he tried again. He said it would end on April 29th, 2007, and he was wrong again. Uh, Jerry Falwell and Tim LaHaye said Y2K would trigger just mass chaos, and the Antichrist would use that to come, and the world would end in 2000. That didn't happen. 
Jim Hagee and the Blood Moon Prophecy claimed the end would come somewhere between April 2014 and September of 2015. Guess what? That didn't happen. I think people would begin to figure out that uh, taking a guess or trying to put a stamp on when the Lord is going to come might sell books in the short term. But in the long term, it's just going to make you look crazier in a sprayed roach. It just is. It's not going to work out for you. Uh, but my hope is, as we look at this, a lot of you are like, what does that mean? It just makes you look crazy, okay? We'll just leave it there. makes you look crazy. Uh, but my hope is, as we look at the sixth and seventh seal being opened this morning in Revelation chapter 6, and then we'll look at chapter 8 as well, is I have one of two things that I hope would happen. One, uh, I hope that the non-believer, if you're in this room and you do not know Jesus, I hope that you repent of your sin and come to know Jesus today. Now, I want to look at the term non-believer for a minute because this isn't just reserved for those who are opposed to God. This is for the individual who prayed a prayer, maybe, but didn't surrender their life. There is no fruit of the gospel, and there's no zeal for the things of holiness in their life. They need to repent as well. They are a non-believer as well and come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That's the first thing. The second thing is that I hope that believers in the room, that you feel the burden and the weight of sharing the gospel, that you feel the burden and the weight of sharing the gospel, using your lips to share the gospel are the two things that I hope happens because in Titus 2, Paul said the return of Jesus was the blessed hope of the Christian. Hear that, the blessed hope of the Christian. Think about it. When Christ comes again, there will be no more disease. There will be no more months and money. There will be no more war. There will be no more arguments and division. There will be no more divorce. There will be no more Nick Saban. It is our blessed hope. <laughs> Got my man Brandon right there. He loves Alabama. But he, Christ is our blessed hope for him to come again. But for the non-believer in the room, this is not something that you should hope for. This is, is a day of judgment. This is the day when Christ comes again, the opportunity for repentance is gone. The door for you to be brought into the family of God is closed for the non-believer, the day that Christ comes again. And again, I hope that as we look at the sixth and seventh seal, it moves us, it challenges us. Because uh, if I'm going to be honest, this, this isn't some warm, fuzzy message that uh, this is a sermon on the judgment of God on his enemies. This is a sermon that has weighed heavy on me, and I hope that you feel the burden as well. Next week, we're going to look at God's redemption of his people, but this week, we're going to look at God's judgment on his enemies, because God is a just God, and he will judge his enemies. So the first thing that we're going to look at in Revelation 6, starting in verse 12, is that God's judgment is devastating. Starting in verse 12, it says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now here, at the opening of the sixth seal, cosmic and global upheaval begins. Now, the sky is rolling up like a scroll. Mountains are disappearing. Stars are falling from the sky. The moon looks like a ball of blood. 
It sounds a lot like Jesus' description of the end in Matthew 24. I encourage you to write that down and go read that later, Matthew 24. But we can read these things and ask the question, is this literal? Is this literally what's going to happen? Are stars going to fall from the sky? Are mountains and islands going to be removed? Is the moon going to look like a ball of blood? Could be. I think there's an earthquake that could happen that could cause volcanic eruptions that would send ash miles into the sky that would darken the sky to make it look like the sun was blacked out and rocks falling from the sky could seem like meteors and stars coming down and crashing to earth. But we need to remember the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. So there are, these are probably symbolic descriptions of the devastating judgment of God at Jesus' return. Because we see in the Old Testament that many prophets use cosmic upheaval to talk about God dropping the hammer on wicked nations. For instance, I want you to write these down. Isaiah 13, 10 describes the destruction of Babylon. It says, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Ezekiel 32, verses 7 through 8 talks about the destruction of Egypt. And it says, when I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. And the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord. So all throughout the Old Testament, we see references and literature that is in this realm. God often Uh, As he comes to make war against his enemies in the Old Testament, the earth shakes like an earthquake. So we see stars falling to the ground. They're being used as a metaphor in Joseph's dream to talk about the eclipse of his brothers. We also see Old Testament prophets use mountains and islands in reference to pagan nations. Now, we're going to read a passage of scripture here in a moment that talks about the non-believer running into caves, running into mountains and crying out for the rocks to fall on them. How are they supposed to do that if the mountains and islands are gone? This is why I believe it is just uh, some apocalyptic language to describe the fall of rulers and nations as God brings devastating judgment on his enemies. And devastating it will be. It won't only be devastating. It'll be total. God's judgment is total. Look at verse 15 here. It says, "...in the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich..." And the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? John describes the destruction of seven different facets of creation. He talks about the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, The sky, mountains, and islands. I would encourage you, underline these, bracket them, circle them to understand the seven different facets of creation that will be destroyed. He also talks about seven different groups of people that will be destroyed. It says kings, great ones, generals, rich, powerful, slaves, and free. So you have seven different facets of creation and seven different groups of people that will receive the judgment of God. Now, if you remember, we're talk, as we walk through this, we pointed out that numbers mean something. Numbers are extremely important here. And the number seven 
means total, finished, complete. So this is the total judgment of God on all of his enemies. Nothing will set you apart from that outside of being in Christ. If you are outside of Christ and you are in the world, that judgment will come. It doesn't matter what you have and what you don't have. It doesn't matter who you are or who you're not. It doesn't matter if you're slave or you're free or you're popular or not or whatever. Fill in the blank. If you are an enemy of God, the judgment is on you. And John's point is when Jesus returns, he'll bring judgment on every political organization, every army, and every single nation that opposes him. Hear me, it will be total. And it will cause the non-believer to run and hide. They ran and hid in caves, crying out for the rocks to fall on them because they did not want to come face to face with God to be held accountable for the things that they have done. This sounds extremely familiar. If you go back to the book of Genesis, what did Adam and Eve do after they have brought sin into the world? If they disobeyed God, what did they do? They ran and hid. Why? Because they didn't want to be in the presence of God and be held accountable for the things that they have done. This is something we see in our own lives time and time again. Us trying to run and hide from God. Think about that for a moment. Trying to hide from God. If he knows the numbers of hair or lack thereof we have on our head, he knows the number of days that we'll live, hear me, he knows where you are now. He knows the things that you have done, the things that you will do. You cannot hide from God. Yet time and time again, we see it happen. Because people don't want to stand before God uncovered. They don't want to stand before God to be held accountable for the sin in their life. And you hear me, you don't have to do that. Jesus has offered himself as your covering to stand in the presence of God. Because hear me, if we stand in the presence of God without that covering, we will be judged. And it is a terrifying thing that we don't want to see. So hear me, repent of your sin and believe. Many people hear this call. Many people have this conversation, but they ignore it. Because they, they look at their lives and they have this false sense of security and goodness that I haven't done what he's done. I haven't done what she's done. I've even heard people say, well, I wasn't Hitler. I didn't slaughter a mass amount of people. I think God will give me this get out of jail free card. I think I can get in unscathed by my good deeds. I think I'll be fine. I'm special. I'm different. I'm not like everybody else. It's false. You see, we're all born depraved. We're all born enemies of God. Every single one of us in this room, every single one of our kids are born enemies of God because of the inherited sin from Adam and Eve. We are born enemies of God. And the only way that we come to know Jesus is by his grace and his mercy to convict us and open our eyes to who he is. Church, we are saved by grace alone. 
through faith alone, by God alone. And the beauty of that is that God oversees every single one of those aspects, and you do nothing for it. I don't do anything for it. That means I can do nothing to lose it. Because the creator holds it in his hands. The judgment we are in Christ has been poured out on his son and not us. This is God's devastating and total judgment. But his judgment isn't just devastating. It's just not total. His judgment is awesome. Now, some of you heard me say the word awesome, and you're like, what? Hold on a minute. I'm not talking about how we all went sledding, and we, uh, all these cars lined up on the interstate ramp, sledding down everything, get to the bottom, look back, and go, that was awesome. That's not what I'm talking about. If we get to the root of this word, it means awestruck, left silent, not being able to say anything. Let's look at Revelation chapter 8. I want to read verses 1 through 5 here to help us understand how awesome the judgment of God is. It says this in verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were pearls of thunder and rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. At the beginning of this, if you remember way back, we, at the beginning of Revelation, we see John crying and weeping because no one is worthy to open the scroll. He says, cry not. Christ is here. He is worthy. He can open the scroll. And here, he opens the last seal. He opened all seven seals, so you think there would be this, this victory loud, this rejoicing, but that's not the case. There's silence at the opening of the seventh seal. It says silence in heaven for about 30 minutes, about half an hour. But why silence? Why silence? Many commentators believe that heaven goes silent so the prayers of the saints can be heard. If you remember last week, if you watched online, we talked about the prayers of the martyrs for God to avenge their deaths. This is the prayers that are rising before God. That he would come, that he would avenge their death by opening up the biggest can of whoop that tail on his enemies. Avenging the martyrs and the saints. And I love this. Because what it shows is that, believer, your prayers do not fall on deaf ears. Your prayers are heard. They have a purpose. When we cry out, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. This is what's happening here. God's kingdom is coming and his will is being done. Your prayers may not be answered how you want them to be answered. They may not be answered now. But they do not fall on deaf ears and they have a purpose that God is going to use them for. Believer, hear me. Your prayers are heard. 
But there's another aspect to this silence. Other commentators believe that the prophets use silence to point to God's judgment. That the judgment and wrath of God is so much that all they can do is stand in awe and silence of the weight of God's wrath and judgment on sin. They are left awestruck. And I know that a lot of our society and a lot of our church, they don't have a problem with God's mercy. They don't have a problem with God lavishing on us his mercy and his grace. It's, it's a sexy thing to believe God is love and everybody's going to heaven. Hear me, God is love. He is the perfect example of love. But he is also the perfect example of of justice, because he is a holy God, and he will not be in the presence of sin. But we have to think about wrath differently. In our context of our own wrath, wrath from us is us losing control of our anger and sinning in that anger. That's our wrath. This is not the wrath of God. The wrath of God is a righteous indignation against all things unholy. It is him bringing all things new. God's wrath is towards all things unholy. It is against all things that are in violation of his character and his will. Sam Storms says God's wrath is a function of God's love. Did you hear that? God's wrath is a function of God's love. God's wrath is his love for holiness. God's wrath is his love for justice, and God's wrath is his love for truth. Because he will not let sin be in his presence. And if God's wrath against sin isn't a reality, then Jesus' sacrifice was pointless. Why would he send his own son if his wrath didn't have meaning? He didn't have to do what he did. Yet he did. You see, the cross where Jesus was crucified is the perfect collision of God's mercy mercy, and God's wrath. They collide together in the cross. Because it is God's wrath poured out on his son Jesus for the sins of all who would believe in him. But it is God's mercy in that he even sent his son. Because left to ourselves, we could not choose God. C.S. Lewis says, we are too busy making mud pies to dream or even think of a holiday at the sea. Christ has to come. He's got to live the perfect life because we're not perfect people. He is. He lifts our eyes to look at the sea, to look at the beauty of who he is. And he says, I died for you. Not only died, but I rose. He gives everything of himself to us. Why would we not in turn do the same? Give our life to him. This changes everything about us. It changes the way that we look at the world. We go outside, you can see the snow, you can see the the tree branches that are frozen. It is beautiful. I was the other day outside building a snowman with Florence and 
we're running around out there, and I just, I sit down for a minute, and we have this beautiful tree in our yard. It's covered in snow and ice and looks beautiful. Hear me. The world is a beautiful place. God has given us the world to bring glory to him. But I don't live for the world. I live for Christ. So that means every aspect of who I am belongs to God. It's my calendar, my day-to-day tasks. It's my marriage. It's my parenting. It's my social media. It's, it's my money. All is vetted through him. He owns it. It changes everything. And believe we're in this room. It changes the way that we interact with the people that are around us. If we understand the scriptures and we understand that those who are not in Christ, those who are in the world, will receive the wrath of God, why are we not sharing our faith? Let me ask you, when's the last time you have? And I'm not saying that just because I've been sharing my faith with my buddy and two weeks ago he gave his life to the Lord. I'm not perfect at this. This is a weight that I felt in this message that am I living a life that is rooted in the gospel that every day that I go out and the people that I interact with, do I know that they are saved or not? And if they're not saved, how am I sharing my faith with them? Or am I wasting every single opportunity of my day? Because I'm afraid that I won't have that friendship anymore. We're so worried, myself included, about a momentary friendship that will be separated from all eternity in a short time. Let me plead with you. Let me plead with you. Would you be so burdened to spend eternity with your family and friends because you shared your faith and God moved? Because here's the thing. God's wrath doesn't distinct on friends and family and people in third world countries that don't have the gospel yet. If you are not in Christ, the wrath of God is on you. So we as believers have a burden. We have a calling to share the gospel. How are we doing it? Uh, the model of our church, we have it massive on the walls out there that says live sin. Is this a cute motto that we can throw around or does it define the way that we interact with the world? My prayer and my hope is that we would understand that live sin comes from John 10.10. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. There is no life outside of Christ. There is only perishing. So believer in this room, share your faith. Talk about Jesus. I don't care if you don't know all the different theologies and intricacies. You know Jesus Christ crucified because that's what saves you. Talk about it. That's what this is for. That's what life groups are for, that we can sharpen each other, that we can do life together, that we can encourage one another in this fight because it is not easy. And it will not always be pretty. But no, if the world hates you, they hated Christ first. Non-believer in this room, I plead with you to hear the call 
to repent of your sin and come to know Jesus. It's the best decision you will ever make. It's the only one that matters. Our prayer is that you would understand the judgment that is on your head. That was on all of our heads at one point. But you see, when we repent and we surrender every aspect of our lives to Christ, the judgment is still there. It's just averted to Christ on the cross. Think about the cross and what Jesus had to go through to save us. Do you understand the weight of the penalty for your sin? Come to know Christ. Hear the call. Do not ignore. In May 1980, geologists warned that Mount St. Helens would soon blow. But a man named Harry Truman, he was named after the late president, was a caretaker of a lodge five miles from Mount St. Helens. And his friends and family were pleading with him to leave the area, and he ignored their call and their warning. He's even seen on TV laughing about the fact that this mountain's going to blow. It's not going to blow. I'm not worried about it. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to enjoy everything that's going on because it's not going to blow. But at 8.31 a.m. on May 18th, 1980, it erupted. Millions of tons of rock flew 10 miles into the air. And everything within a 150-mile radius was destroyed, including Harry Truman. He perished because he ignored the call of his friends and family to believe and leave. And hear me today. If you are not in Christ, I'm calling you to repent and believe and walk in newness of life. Because this is not a joke, and this is not a gimmick. Each and every day, the opportunity for you to be brought into the fold is slowly going away. And I know that this sermon wasn't, you've been hanging out with your family for a week, not getting around people, you didn't want to come here and hear this. But this is everything. And when God calls us and speaks, we move and we listen. And we know he is going to come again. And there will be judgment for the sin and those who are not in him, those who are enemies of God. We have a job to do here, believer. The harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. I plead with you. I plead with you. Share your faith. Share the gospel. The only one who can save, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, we come before you. Only because you allow it.
Father, I ask that for the believers in this room that we would feel the weight of the lost in our world. That we would know and that we would understand the calling you've placed on us to go out into the world near and far and share the gospel. Talk about you and what you've done. God, I know this is not an easy thing. I know this isn't always a fun thing. But it is a necessary thing. Because you are the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father except through you. So, Father, allow us to feel the burden of how will they hear if no one speaks? How will the Slave here about freedom if no one talks about you. God, I pray there is just a fire in our souls. That we cannot escape and get rid of. That we have to talk about you, Jesus. Father, I pray for individuals in this room that do not know you. I, feel, I pray that they feel the weight of their current situation, God. I pray that they know that their good deeds they're trying to do, all the things they're trying to do to earn your favor, God, you've accomplished in your son Jesus, that outside of him they cannot get to heaven. I pray that they would repent and believe, God, that there would be fruit in their lives. There would be a zeal for you, a fire for your holiness and the things of God in their hearts. God, we are a tool in your hands, and we ask that you come and you use us, Father, in your precious and holy name. Amen. Church, this is heavy. but it should be something that we think about. Because the day of judgment that is coming is a delight to the believer, terrifying for the non-believer. And they don't even know it. We all have people in our lives that need to hear the gospel. I have multiple that I'm thinking of right now that I, I do life with. My own family that need Jesus. Would we be so bold to live a life that's worthy of the gospel and that we would be so bold to have tough conversations? Do not fear. God is with you. Our job is to go and cast the seed. We can't save anyone. But how can they be saved if they don't hear? There's things to reflect on. So in these moments, as we continue to worship God through singing, if you need to sit, sit. If you need to stand, stand. If, you need, if you're in this room and you know you're not a believer, walk out through these doors, and me and Kyle and Kurt will be out of these doors until you're right. We want to talk with you. If you're a believer in this room, 
we have a multitude of reasons to praise God. So I implore you, feel the burden of the person that's in your life that needs Jesus. Stand and sing and praise him because in this moment you are in Christ. When we leave this building, we leave on mission. Not just hearing some fun message to feel good about ourselves. We leave on mission to take the gospel from here until the ends of the earth.